13, verses 1 through 3. If you haven't turned there in your Bibles, I invite you to do that. I want to read the text for us this morning. Just three simple verses, straightforward, but have much for us to hear. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 3. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Now, these three verses can be outlined very simply. Verse 1 speaks about loving the brethren. Verse 2 speaks about loving the strangers. And verse 3 speaks about loving the prisoners. It's the three parts of our message this morning. Three titles to our small sermons. Love the brethren. Love the strangers. Love the persecuted or love the prisoners. Now, realize that that none of these commands, though, come in in a vacuum. They're at the end of a very long letter which was written to Jews in the first century. They'd heard about the Messiah Jesus. They'd come into the church. They were experiencing the church, experiencing the Holy Spirit, listening to the good Word of God, the powers of the age to come. And uh, yet they're being pulled away by their Jewish ancestors by the Jewish friends to go back into the priests and the festivals and the laws and the sacrifices. And, and for 12 chapters, this writer is pointing out how great Jesus is. He's better than anything the Old Testament has to offer. And over and over and over and over again, he places Jesus high and warns them, don't drift away from that because you've got the best thing in Jesus. Don't, don't drift from that. Don't harden your hearts from that. Don't fall away from that. Don't refuse to listen to God in those things. Instead, they were to continue in their belief in the Messiah. They were to continue to trust that He's the one whose bloodshed would cleanse them from their sins. He's the one that would give them access to the Father. And they were called to, to press on in their faith, called to continue on in the church. And chapter 13 tells us how they are to press on. The theme of Hebrews, you can see it there on the screen, right? Is Jesus is better, so press on. And chapter 13 is ways in which we can press on. I mean, this is the whole conclusion of two years of exalting Jesus and lifting Jesus high as we've been working verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. And finally, we come to say, what does it look like? Well, here are three ways it looks like. It looks like loving the brethren. It looks like loving strangers. It looks like loving the persecuted. Jesus is better, so love. It's the title of our message this morning. Love in three ways. My first point here comes in verse 1. Love the brethren. I mean, you can't get any more obvious than that. Let love of the brethren continue. It's three words in the Greek. Ha, Philadelphia, meno. Let love of the, of the brothers continue. The King James and ESV have translated more literally, let brotherly love continue. Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love because it's combined of two words. Philos, love, Adelphos, brother. You put those two things together and you have the love of the brothers, the brotherly love. And that's what the call is here. Brotherly love, let it continue. Let it flourish. Let it blossom. The call here is to love the brethren, that is, fellow believers in Jesus Christ. It's not a call to, to love all. It's not even a call to love the strangers. This is a call to love the people in the church who you know. Those who love Christ. See, the church has, has a bond that makes us like family. It's what the word brethren means. It's a, it's a joining to us. It's a, the family. Now, particularly for these first century uh, listeners, 
there were probably among the Jews a lot of kinsmen, a lot of people related to each other. And though not many of us are related to each other, still there is a sense where in the church there is a, a brotherhood. We are, are called to act towards one another like mothers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters. In fact, that's what Paul told Timothy to do in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Appeal to older men as fathers. Appeal to younger men as brothers. Treat older women as mothers. And treat younger women as sisters in all purity. There just should be a purity about the church. Like there's a purity about the family. There's a respect. There's a mutual love and admiration. Which is pure. In fact, our love for one another is an identifying mark of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a testimony of our love for Jesus. Jesus said this, John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are My disciples if you have a love for one another. So as we love one another, as we fulfill this command, it's a proclamation to the world that we do indeed follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how important this, this is. And it comes really from Jesus is so great. What else can we do but to follow Him and follow in His ways of love, extending out towards the brothers? Now, I think you know what love is. I mean, love is one of those things that's sort of difficult to define, but easy to know when it's there and easy to know when it's not there. You just kind of feel it and taste love. But love is really considering others more important than yourself. That's what love is. Love is giving of yourself to others, even sometimes at great cost to yourself. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13.7 Love is, I think you can put it down as, love is time and sacrifice. You've got to have both of those. Love is time and sacrifice. It's both quantity and quality. You've got to have both those things. It's, it's often being with each other. It is sacrificially being with each other. And a good picture of that is the Russian church. I spoke with a friend of mine who married a Russian gal. Some of you know Jake. Uh, he lived over in Russia with part of the Slavic Gospel Association, ministered to the Russians for over a year. And I knew that they had three sermons, so I talked to him. I said, well, tell me about this service, this church service. And what I described to you is exactly what he described. And uh, the fact that church lasts often for three hours is typical there. He told me that. And so I said to him, I said, Jake, how... How did the people respond to such a lengthy service? So I know that's one of the things that we Americans kind of get uptight about, you know, when you've got your schedules and you've got to keep it and things have to be short. And, and here's what his response was from having experienced this, having tasted it for a year and a half. He said, they love them. They look forward to these services. They long for Sundays. Because after the church, though it's three hours long, two hours long, whatever, Church normally doesn't scatter their homes to get involved in their activities or their, their televisions or the ball games or the internet or other interests. No, they, they stay right there at the church building and they oftentimes stay there all Sunday. There's oftentimes a tea after church, kind of fill up a little bit so they can continue on, a fellowship meal followed by Bible studies deep into the afternoon. Now you've got to hear this also, is that it's not that the leaders of the evangelical, mostly Russian Baptist church there said, we need to worship God for a long time. Let's have two-hour services. You know, it's not dictated from above. Rather, it is desired by the people. I know in foreign lands, it is much like that as well. Just a desire 
from the people. When you don't have much else, there's not much else to divert. It's a curse of America. We have so much else, there's so much to divert that we lose God in the process. But they, they love being together. Why? Because they love the Lord and they love being with the brethren. There's no place that they would rather be than with their brothers and sisters in Christ. In this way, they fulfill the great commandment to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Even as Jesus said, it takes place in Russia because their love for God, they love one another. And, and it ought to take place with us. I mean, our love to Jesus and just hearing week in, week out about the greatness of Jesus ought, ought to draw us to Him and then draw us to others in great love and admiration. You know, we can taste a bit of this today at Rock Valley Bible Church. You know, without a church building, Sunday night service has been difficult. But as you know, we've put in the bulletin, we've talked about our Sunday evenings throughout the summer in place of our small groups. It's a, it's a, you know, small group attendance kind of hard in the summer. People going off for vacation. It's not a big deal when you have got a, a bunch of people and a few are gone, but it's a bigger deal when you've got whatever four families together and two are gone. Kind of just the spirits thing. So instead, we're going to have come together Sunday night services at uh, church each Sunday. So tonight, six o'clock, and I've invited my pastor friends from around the city, uh, those who uh, I know and love and trust of like-minded churches. And um, Larry Pauley's coming from Elam Baptist Church. And uh, he's going to come. We have a chance to gather back here, kind of formal singing time from 6. He'll be done by 7. And uh, then after that, just going to kind of segue outside. I hear the weather's supposed to be about 70 or so tonight. Um, so if you can, just bring maybe something a little bit to eat. Uh, you can share around, I don't know, some cookies, snacks, whatever. And uh, bring some games you want to play. And let's just, let's just be like the Russian church tonight. And, and be and hear the Word and then to love one another. Uh, kids will be outside playing. It'll be a wonderful time. I hope you take advantage of this opportunity. I've told Larry and all the preachers, why don't you stay around? Because I want us to know you so that when we do things in the future of other churches, then you'll know, oh, I know Larry, or I know Bob Bixby, or I know um, Bruce McCann, or I know all these other pastors because I've heard them and know them as so we uh, partner with them in uh, various things. Well, let's go back to verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. It implies that the love of the brethren exists. But he's saying, let it go. The, the call here is to keep this love going. Love is such like that. You can't just love your spouse the day you get married and then neglect marriage. right? You've got to just continue to cultivate that. And that's what this is a call to. Let it continue. Let love be continually cultivated. And I'm encouraged to say that genuine biblical love exists here at Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, I can put lots of examples out here. Think of um, the Krause family needed a roof put on their house. Men came in scores to help put up a roof on their house. It just happened. They were in need. Um, Karen Looney, when uh, she broke her wrist, right? The church just rallied around that. And she expressed her love yesterday by, by having dinner for many of those who served her. It's kind of just how uh, love works, kind of back and forth. Like many have come around those with difficulties to help them physically or financially. Uh, just when there is a need, there is help there. Uh, and it comes. When babies come, meals come. Right? When finances drop off, uh, help comes. Food's been given, that, that sort of thing. Financial things have come. Uh, yesterday, ladies, by, ladies uh, came together Wendy Iverson's um, Baby shower. When do you hear? Right. Toby emailed everybody. So you all got this. Most of you got this. And Toby wrote it well. He says, Hello, ladies. Just wanted to thank each person who helped with Wendy's shower by way of food, games, set up, takedown, etc. 
I wouldn't have been able to do this on my own. I need my sisters in many ways. And this was one as well. Toby, I love how you put there, I'm not sure where Toby is, I love how she put there about the sisters in the church. We're brothers and sisters in the church together. She says, I trust Wendy was blessed by all of us so we considered her more important than ourselves. That's love. And then i got to read how she ends. God is good. May you be blessed in His truth. Toby, Chad's happy wife. And she does that often. Chad's happy wife. Love abounds at Rock Valley Bible Church. Now, but, but before you get too secure in this, okay? Before you get too snug and say, hey, we're really good here, know that there are people in our midst who don't feel this love. And um, often it's a major reason why people leave Rock Valley Bible Church. Truth be known. I've been told on more than one occasion as people leave the church, the church just isn't loving. That's what I've been told. And now, on the one hand, love is reciprocal, right? I mean, you love others, they love you, and that stirs you on to love them, and they love you, and then you, you sin against each other, and the, the love goes down, but then there's forgiveness, and then it bounds, you just kind of go back and forth. So there needs to be two sides to one coin. And, and often, those who say they feel no love are often the same ones who just kind of come and go. On Sundays, you kind of rarely see them. They don't avail themselves the opportunity to be around and to know each other and to love each other little contact with anyone throughout the week. But that doesn't excuse us. We are still called to reach out and love the brethren. And it just may be the case that those who are distant are the same ones who are in danger of falling away. Like Hebrews chapter 3 says, Take care, brethren, verse 12, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And maybe those who are distant are the very ones who desperately need your love and encouragement. They need to help that their hearts aren't hardened. And so I just encourage you to, to love the brethren, those who you know and even stretch beyond within the body of Christ, those who maybe you don't know so well, to love them stretchingly. So, Rack Valley Bible Church, I call you to love. I call you to love the brethren. I call you to continue in your love. I call you to excel in your love. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10 says this. Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's how it works. God teaches us how it is we love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. And there's the brethren language. God's taught you how to love and you practice. And here's what Paul said to the Thessalonians. He said, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And that's my call to you, Rock Valley Bible Church, to excel still more in your love for the brethren. Amen. I want to tell you a story. Something that happened many years ago. Right after Christmas time, a man and his son decided they wanted to go ice skating at a local lake. The boy had just gotten a brand new set of ice skates, and he was excited to try them out. And so he and Dad went down to the nearby lake. The lake was frozen. Uh, It was very cold. And as the father parked the car, his anxious son had already put the skates on his feet. He was ready to go. So as soon as the car was parked... The boy jumped out of the car, ran down to the lake. His dad called out after him, Be careful, son. There might be thin spots out there. Don't go too far. 
And the father started putting his ice skates on as well. All of a sudden, the father heard a yell. He looked up and saw his boy fall through the ice. He'd gone out to a part of the lake that had a spring coming through, and the ice was thin at that point. His father was in a panic and dashed down to the boy and tried to reach out with his hand. He couldn't get close enough because the ice was so thin. It was breaking off. He could hear it cracking. He said, son, just grab onto the side of the ice. Try to pull yourself up. I can't, Dad. I can't. I can't get up across the ice. As he tried to pull himself up, the ice kept on breaking. The boy was desperate at that point. He was getting tired and he was cold. He said, son, I have to go back to shore. Just hang on. Hang on. He ran back to the shore, started looking for anything he could to pull the boy out of the water. Couldn't find any branches. There was nobody around. No one to help. He never considered himself a religious man, but in that moment, he began to pray and ask God to somehow save his son. He looked up, and as if from nowhere, a man approached him with a rope. And together, they went out, threw the rope out to the boy, pulled him in, and took him to safety. After getting his son into the car, the father wrapped a blanket around him, tried to warm him up. The father turned around and saw that the man was gone. Now, this is a true story that was told to me by my, my brother, who was the boy that fell through the ice. Um, my brother Glenn, some of you have met him. He's gone now. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because it's possible that the man with the rope was an angel. I believe he was, personally, okay? And uh, we don't know, but we do know that this man was placed by God in the right place at the right time for the right purpose, with the right tools to do the right thing. And just as uh, the angels were sent to Abraham and Lot. And so, before we turn to our text, we want to go back to where I read earlier in uh, Genesis chapter 18. And uh, before I, I explain some of the texts, I want to talk a little bit about this topic of hospitality because when Steve asked me to explain or to preach about hospitality, I kind of had the notion of what we traditionally think about hospitality. What hospitality to us means is, is having potlucks or baby showers, right, Wendy? Or... Um, uh, having the boys and their dads over to shoot 22s on the farm. You know, extending hospitality to people. In fact, churches have hospitality committees, don't they? And I was going to preach kind of on that, that vein, that it's really hospitality. But, but Steve said, no, you've got to look a little more careful at that verse, Phil, because that's not what the biblical interpretation of hospitality really is. It's, that's important, okay? As, as important as that is, I don't want to say don't do those things. In fact... You know, I've been to many of your homes and I've got a standing offer to come there and we want to continue with that. That's in the vein of love like Steve was talking about earlier. But the type of hospitality we're talking about here is a Greek word, and I want to try to get this right, philokinis, kinis, Uh, pretty good, okay, philokinis, which means philo, meaning love, kinis, kinis, meaning the stranger. Love of a stranger. Now, that's totally different from what I was used to in terms of hospitality. I've never heard of loving strangers before, but that is the biblical interpretation of hospitality. 
So we're going to go through the scriptures and I'm not going I'm going to have the the scriptures preach for me. This is not going to be Lord Phil preaching the gospel. It's going to be Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay. Lord Jesus is going to preach the gospel this morning. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 18 and talk about some things that we noticed in terms of how Abraham and Lot presented hospitality, how he loved the strangers. Okay. And so uh, Abraham is. We'll just kind of uh, skip through some of these verses. He lifts up his eyes in verse 2, and he sees three men. And what he does, he runs from the tent door to meet them and bows himself before them. Now, here's a man, a man that's 99 years old. Okay, you've got to kind of picture this. Okay, he's out there at, at the, uh, the Mamre Oaks KOA campground. Okay. And he is there in the, in the hot sun. He sees these strangers and he, he runs out there. He's excited. He's overwhelmed. He's, he's just beside himself with joy. He bows himself to the earth and he says, My Lord, if you've found favor in my sight, come and stay with me. Please don't pass by. I'll get a little water so you can wash up. So what is he doing? He's imploring these people. He's, he's trying to signify his value to them. He hopes that they will come in and he's imploring them to come so he can serve them and he can serve them. And so what he does, he goes ahead and he provides the water to wash their feet, rest under the tree. You know, now understand this, folks. Um, they didn't have like 911 in those days. OK. Wh- who were these people? He didn't know who they were, where they came from. The scripture doesn't say that that he recognized them as the, as, as the Lord and the angels. So he didn't know who they were at that time, at that very moment. They could have been muggers. They could have been thieves. They could have been scoundrels. Here's a very wealthy man that's sitting out in the middle of nowhere in a tent, and they could have taken advantage of him. But he doesn't think about that. In fact, he doesn't even ask them what their nature of business is at that point. All he cares about is them. He wants to love them unconditionally. The love of strangers. He says, I'm going to provide for you a piece of bread. But what what does he do? He doesn't only provide a piece of bread. He goes and he bakes. He has Sarah bake something for these men. And then he goes to his herd and he goes and selects the tender and choice calf and gives it to his servants to prepare. You see, hasn't asked for their qualifications, their documents, doesn't know anything about these men at all, just provides that love, that care, love of strangers that we're talking about. Philo Kenneth. Okay. And so then he says, in verse 8, says here, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. He just kind of stood aside. He didn't even sit down with them to eat with them. He just kind of stood aside and let them eat by themselves. Didn't get nosy. Didn't pry. Didn't ask the nature of their business. Just took them in. Okay, so Abraham is the perfect host, isn't he? He does everything right, loves these people, provides for them, gives them what they need, takes care of their their pain. Now, you might say, well, Phil, you know, Abraham, he's kind of a eccentric old guy. You know, he might be out there just waiting for visitors to come his direction. Isn't this just kind of cultural? Well, Maybe. After, of course, the angels give him the message, and the message is kind of a good news, bad news message, isn't it? The good news is you're going to have a baby. Your wife is going to have a baby at age 90. 
The bad news is we've come to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the bad news. And of course, you can read the rest of that particular passage. But let's take a look at another form of hospitality that was offered through Lot. In chapter 19, it says, Now the two angels came to Sodom. It's probably the same two angels that went to see Abraham with the Lord. And what does Lot do? Lot looks up and he sees them. He rose to meet them and bowed down his face to the ground. Sound kind of familiar? Yeah, it's the same kind of reception. He gives the same kind of reception. He says, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and rise early and go on your way. Same context. Didn't ask them what their nature of business is, where they're from, whether they're there to do mischief or good. He just welcomes them in. Not only that, he says, stay with me. And they say, no, we're going to go ahead and spend the night outside. Yet he urged them strongly so that they should turn in with him. And what does Lot do? Lot not only provides for their food and their drink and their lodging without inquiring of their nature of the business they're in, he also provides protection for them as well because what he does is he fends off the crowd. He's trying, he's trying to, to keep them away from the street because he knows the danger of the street in Sodom and Gomorrah at that point. So not only does he offer hospitality by loving the stranger, he wants to provide protection for the stranger as well. Now, I looked through the scriptures and I found about 29 other passages that talked about this kind of hospitality that was offered throughout the Bible. And we have to ask ourselves, is this just kind of a cultural thing in the Middle East? Because that's what some of the uh, commentaries said. It's just kind of cultural. Well, I would beg to differ because if you turn to Leviticus chapter 19, let's turn that to, to there for a second. Le- Leviticus 19, if I can find it. Leviticus 19, verses 35, I believe. Nope, 34. It says, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it might have been cultural at one point, but became the law to the people of God. It became the law. The people of Israel knew that this was ingrained in them. This hospitality thing was ingrained as part of their culture, but part of their obligation to fulfill under the law of God. Well, let's see what Jesus says about that in the New Testament. So I'd like you to turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 10. This is very interesting, by the way, to see how Jesus views the concept of hospitality. Uh, Of course, the chapter 10 of of Matthew is about Jesus preparing his disciples to go out to preach. And we're not going to go through the whole chapter verse by verse. Don't have time to do that. But he does say certain things to the the men, to the twelve. And he says this, you know, he, of course, gives them power over sickness, over death, power to, to do miracles and so forth. But he also says this in verse 5. He says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any of the cities of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wants them to stay in 
the area. Stay in the house. Stay with the Jews. Stay with the Hebrews, the children of Abraham. Okay? And we soon find out why that's important. If you look over here in verse 11, it says, In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay in the, at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, go unto the lost sheep of Israel because they understand the law of Moses, of loving the strangers. They should be able to understand your gospel, understand what you're preaching about in terms of repentance, and welcome you as a stranger. Give you that unconditional love of strangers. That's what makes those men and those families worthy. He was looking for worthy families. Sought out worthy families. He told the disciples, find these worthy families, these people that are qualified to have you come in, to host you, that receive you and receive your message. It's very important. Look for them. Look for the worthy ones. Okay? And once you find those worthy ones, give them a blessing. Bless them. Tell them what God is going to do in your life. Tell them how much God is going to bless you, not only here but in eternity, for what you do. But here's what happened also that Jesus says. He says, if the house is not worthy, then take back your blessing. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, shake the dust off your feet. It's going to be worse for them in the judgment than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's interesting. That's how highly esteemed Jesus thought of this concept of hospitality. See, the Jews knew about it back through the days of Abraham and through the law. And they knew what they had to do for the stranger. They had to love the stranger in the land. This also includes loving other Jews, by the way. Not just people that were foreign, but other Jews as well. But he says if they reject you and your message, then they are doomed. Now, keep in mind this, this concept of of judgment. Let's turn over to another passage that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25, just a few chapters down the road here. Matthew chapter 25. And in particular, verses 31 through 46. Again, we're not going to read the entire portion. But this is the passage where the Son of Man returns in all of his glory with his angels to judge the nations. And he says, I'm going to put the sheep on my right hand, the goats on my left hand. And he's got a standard. He's got a gold standard here that he's going to judge the nations with. And this is the gold standard, so to speak. And it says this. In verse 35, he says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Of course, then the righteous are saying, well, when did you call us? We didn't hear you, Jesus, calling us. We didn't hear you, Master. We didn't serve you. And he says this. He says in verse 40, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You did it to me. You see, Abraham ministered directly to Jesus. We don't have that opportunity, but Jesus says if we do it to strangers, if we 
give this love of strangers, hospitality to strangers, you're doing it to Jesus. You're actually ministering to him. Let's go to one more passage, Luke 14. And then we'll kind of wind it down here. Luke 14, 12 to 14. And we want to find out what kind of people do we minister to? Do we minister to just those that are foreign, alien? Those people that basically we don't know, unknowns, either Christians or non. We don't know what their nature of business is. We don't know what their background is. Or is there a particular type of person that Jesus wants us to minister to? And he says this in verse 12. He says, and he also went on to say to one of them who invited him, when you give a luncheon to it or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you in return that they may will be with your that will be your repayment. Verse 13 says, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since you do not have the means to repay, since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is really a critical concept, the concept of hospitality and giving to other giving to the stranger, but also doing with the right motives, doing it with the right motives. Go ahead and minister to people that cannot repay you because you will be repaid in glory. And I I would submit to you that you do get blessings by ministering to people here on earth. You do. I mean, it's you get good feelings. You feel good about what you're doing. But the real reward is at the resurrection. And this, of course, is part of fulfilling the law of Christ to bear one another's burdens. Now, quickly, we want to go through the some other passages very, very, uh, very quickly here. And uh you know, Paul, of course, is one of those who advocates hospitality. If we go back to um, Hebrews 13 now, it says in verse 2 again, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And what, what he means by neglect is that the people already know what he's talking about. They've already been prepped about the law of Moses and offering hospitality and doing it with the right motives, loving the strangers. He says, don't neglect it. Okay. One more verse here that I'd like to talk about that's very important. And it's in 1 Timothy. And this is kind of a surprising one to me. I didn't really, I I knew it was in here, but I didn't really quite understand what it meant. And so if we're going to go over 1 Timothy. Chapter 5, verse 10. This chapter talks about the widows and how you treat a widow. It's Paul's instructions to Timothy. And he says there's something called a widow's list. And there's some qualifications to get on this widow's list, by the way. And if you look down, verses 9 and following, she has to be 60 years of age. Wife of one man, having a good reputation, brought up children. And if she has shown hospitality to strangers. Now, we have to be very careful about that. I wouldn't necessarily encourage single women, widowed women, to encourage strangers off the street. 
Okay, I believe, really believe that these, these women are ministering to other Christians, strangers, people that are unknown, maybe to her, but maybe, maybe known in the church. And so be, be careful here. But one of the qualifications to be on the widow's list is for her to have shown hospitality to strangers. Okay. Other places we don't have time to talk about right now would be uh, Peter talking about hospitality, John talking about hospitality. But what about this topic concerning angels? What about angels? And so, you know, one of the things we have to do is address that topic. I started out with it. I want to kind of finish up with a couple of comments about angels. Back to chapter 13, verse 2b. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And so we have to remember that the author that's preaching here to the Hebrews or writing to the Hebrews, of course, is addressing Jews, Jewish Christians. And of course, they have their roots in Abraham. They knew about the law of Abraham or the law of Moses and about Abraham. They knew that their roots went all the way back to the idea of presenting this type of hospitality And I believe that uh, the author here was pressing home the importance of hospitality by reminding them that they could be entertaining angels unawares or angels about. And uh, the the Bible has over 300 references to angels. I picked up up a book uh, years ago by Billy Graham called Angels, God's Secret Agents. Anybody here read this book at any point? Excellent book. Okay, Jerry. And I just wanted to read to you one of the uh, quotes just from the preface preface of it, and he is, he is basically quoting John Calvin here. And, um, you know, it's probably not going to be very likely that we will entertain agents or angels, these agents of God. But, uh, you know, it's important to realize the role that we do have when it comes to providing hospitality to others. And it says here, John Calvin in volume one of his Institutes of the Christian Religion said, Angels are the dispensers dispensers and administrators of the divine beneficence toward us. They regard our safety, undertake our defense, direct our ways, and exercise a constant solitude that no evil befall us. That's what angels do, kind of in a nutshell. But I looked at that and I said to myself, you know what? That's what we should be doing for one another, shouldn't we? We should be regarding one another's safety. We should be undertaking each other's defense. We should be helping to direct each other's ways and exercise a constant vigilance that no one befall evil. So today in our society, where we've been told that, you know, our home is our our fortress, it's really kind of a uh, basically a place where we can hide from danger in the public. We have to realize that there's great benefit to providing hospitality to those strangers. I would rather encourage you to to have people come to the home than have people stay in a hotel. If they're visiting us during a Christian conference or a speaking engagement, there'd be greater accountability for that person, better spiritual protection for that person, better fellowship, more encouragement, and a cost of savings. And on top of that, there is the point of view that we would be blessed not only here, but also in the afterlife when we meet the Lord in judgment. So let me pray and ask us to be better hosts in terms of hospitality. And then Darren will come up. 
Gracious Father in heaven, we read and understand your word with regard to hospitality. We ask that you forgive us for not offering hospitality when we could and grant us grace to offer it when the opportunity arises. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, but actually, as um, when Steve gave us, came to Phil and I and, and asked us to do this, and I thought about it, I'm like, yeah, I'll go, I volunteered to go last. And as I started to prepare, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, Steve got to preach about brotherly love. Who doesn't want to hear about brotherly love? And Phil gets to preach about having dinner, angels over for dinner, and I get to preach about going to jail. So, but let's, let's, uh, as I thought about it, I did, this verse has, has spoken powerfully to me this week in many ways. So let's read it again and be reminded of it. It says this, remember those that are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. As I thought about this uh, verse, the first part, it calls us to remember those in prison. Why do we need to remember those who are in prison? I think there's two reasons. One that makes sense, that's very clear. I think the other one is a little more obscure, a little more, it doesn't quite make as much sense. The first one, very clear, we're to remember those in prison because, especially in, in those times, in the early church times, those that were in prison needed... The, the early believers. If the people, those who were in prison, if they were going to get fed, it was because somebody brought them food. Or if, somebody, uh, if they were going to have clothes, it was because somebody brought them clothes. Likewise, today in, in our generation, in our world, if we're going to, uh, those people who are in prison, they need us. But I think there's, a, there's another reason that's a little more obscure and that reason is because we, in America, we need to hear the stories of those who are in prison. I think those who are in prison, they have an idea, they get what it means to pray to God. They have a view of God that I think we, don't, we miss. They have a view of what it means to be bold for Christ. This week I was reading a book called The Privilege of Persecution. And it starts off by... The, of a story, an account of a couple North Korean believers who went to go visit uh, the Pacific Northwest, and they were staying with a pastor at his house. And as they they go in, they go into this pastor's house. He, the pastor's son is is on the couch in in the living room, and he's reading his Bible, which for a teenager is kind of an anomaly in and of itself. But he 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 gets up, and out of politeness, he he stands up, and he he t- takes his Bible and he, he closes it and he tosses it lightly onto the couch. At which point the North Koreans, uh, the North Korean uh, Christians, they just start to weep. And the question they ask is, why would you treat the Bible in such a way? And then the, the author of, of that book, he says this, of, of the author of The Privilege of Persecution, he says, to many of us in the West... The emotional reverence of these men for a book, even a very special book, may seem too dramatic, but there is an irresistible sense of grandeur that comes when the Bible is viewed as something possessing the awe and the nobility of God Himself. We see it again in Philippians 1.4. We need 
early, we need, when we can learn from, from those who are in prison, we can learn boldness. As Paul talked, he said in Philippians 1.14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak of Christ. See, we're part of a, a global community. There is a community of, that is called the church that is all true believers at all places and all times. D.A. Carson says this about when we gather here today. He says, Whatever it is we do when we gather together, we do in the profound recognition that we believers constitute something much bigger than any one of us or even any any empirical group of us. We are the church, the temple of God. We're part of this great kaleidoscope, people of, of all different tongues and nations. And there will be coming a day when we will all sit at, the, mercy, at, at the, the throne of Christ and we will say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. And so we, we need to get this, this understanding that we are a part of a global church, something much bigger than ourselves. <clears throat> you know, I, I think um, this, this isn't a glamorous thing to do. We don't hear much about the persecuted church. You don't hear seminars. You don't hear a lot of sermons about this. And as I thought about it this week, yeah, it's, it's easy for me to be reminded that, man, we need to do this. We, we need to remember the Christians, especially those who are persecuted. But the gnawing, haunting thought and the feeling in my own mind and in my own heart was that, man, that just doesn't happen. I don't remember those who are in prison. I don't think and I don't pray and I don't have a heart for those who are mistreated. And my feeling is that it's probably similar to many of you. So my thought was, how in the world can we live this out? How can we remember those who are in prison? How can we think about those who are mistreated? I think it was a lot easier for these Christians because if you look back in Hebrews 10, as Steve preached about a couple weeks ago, he says in 1032, but recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle of sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So I think it was probably easier for these people because they, they understood. They had been imprisoned, possibly. They had been mistreated. They had had their property taken away, and they joyfully accepted that. But for us in the West, it's, I think it's a little more difficult. How in the world are we able to remember? You know, I think we are, we are able to empathize better with people if we've gone some, through something ourselves. If you've gone through cancer or a, a mother or father's gone through cancer, you can empathize better. If you've gone through dire financial situations, you can empathize with, in, a, in a better and a clearer way of, of those who are in financial straits. So the question I have real quickly is, how in the world can we remember those who are in prison? Just two, two reasons, uh, two, two ways that I came up with. The first I would recommend is, um, as I thought about this, I, I thought, you know, I can't love and I can't have a heart for those things that I don't know about. I think it's true of Christ. It's true of your, your family. If you don't know somebody, you can't have a heart for them. Um, 
So I would recommend, I can't, I can't think of a better, uh, better reference, a better way to become informed about the persecuted church than Voice of the Martyrs. Their website is persecution.org. I think that's helpful because it gives names and faces to the people who are persecuted, the, those who are imprisoned, those who are falsely in, um, put in prison, who are mistreated. It tells us stories about people like Asia Babi. This was a um, in, in this is in one of their periodicals. They send a if you give them a small donation every year, they'll send you a, a monthly newsletter. Talks about Asia Babi in Pakistan, a 37-year-old Pakistani woman from the village of Atawali, was arrested on June 2009 after telling a group of Muslim women, "Our Christ is the true prophet of God, and yours is not true." The women had been pressuring Asia to convert to Islam, but she held to Christ, her Christian faith. Christians there urged the police not to file blasphemy charges, but police claimed that they must go forward due to the pressure from local Muslim leaders. On November 8, 2010, a judge sentenced Asia to death. At press time, her attorney was preparing an appeal. Voice of the Martyrs is helping pay the legal fees. So I, I would commend uh, there's anything that they put out. Uh, Voices of Martyrs is, is a good way, I think, to, to put names and faces on those who are persecuted. And then finally, how in the world can we understand, how in the world can we remember those who are imprisoned? How can we have a heart for those who are mistreated? And I would say simply, as is the theme of all of Hebrews, look to Jesus. He was a prisoner of the flesh so that He could free us who were prisoners of, of sin. He who was without sin took our sins so we could be free not to sin. On the night that He was betrayed, He was mistreated. He was falsely imprisoned. He was ill-treated so that before God, we would be well-treated. We would even be treated as sons and daughters. Through Christ, He can help us to love others. Through Christ, He can help us to show hospitality. Through Christ, He can help us to remember those who are our brothers and sisters imprisoned and mistreated. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the commands to love the brethren, to show hospitality, and to remember those who are persecuted and have a heart for those who are mistreated, as though we can understand because in the body as well. So I pray that that would be true of of this body, of the encouragement that uh, Steve gave us uh, to love even more. I pray that we would remember those who are in prison as though brothers and sisters as they are in Christ. And we thank you for Christ, for through you and th- we are, they are our brothers and sisters, and we thank you and praise you for that. In your name, Amen.